Okay, Bruchem Abon. Welcome everyone. Thank you everyone for coming. We'd like to welcome all of our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight's shir is being sponsored. Levi Nishmas, Rochelle Ben Esther, and Lubalea Bas Bitya by Mishpacha Zavdanov and all the Mishpachos that are the children and grandchildren of Rochelle Ben Esther and Lubalea Bas Bitya. Also, Levi Nishmas. Yisrael ben Bluma and Moshe ben Bluma, all of the neshama should be Melitze Yesharim for their respective families, for Simchas and Nachas, Parnas Barevach, good health. Mali Hashem Komashas Lubchem Latoiva, Abiyas Goyal Tzedek. Okay, so we have a very interesting topic tonight, and we could even say that this topic is not for uh, a general audience. Um, it's a very sensitive topic, and uh, we're going to get right into it. This week's parasha, we find that Yaakov Avinu marries first who he thought was Rachel, when actually in reality it was Leah. And then Yaakov Avinu decides he's going to marry the woman who he thought he was going to marry from the beginning, and that is Rachel. Yaakov Avinu marries two sisters. And the Ramban is bothered by the following question. And the question is, if in fact, the Avais kept the entire Torah before it was given. We know Avram Avinu kept the whole Torah before it was given. Avram Avinu ate matzah and Pesach. Chazal say Avram Avinu even, even kept Erev Tavshilin. And Yaakov Avinu kept the whole Torah before it was given. Yaakov Avinu even learned Torah consecutively for 14 years. He did not sleep at night. How was Yaakov Avinu allowed to marry two sisters? That is the question of the Ramban. Okay, got it? The Ramban wants to know how could Yaakov Avinu marry two sisters. To which the Ramban answers, it's not a problem. Because the main place in this world to keep the mitzvot is the land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael. And since the Avos were voluntarily keeping the mitzvot, they only accepted upon themselves to keep the mitzvot in the land of Israel. Where did Yaakov marry the two sisters? Outside of Eretz Yisrael. And conveniently, one of them died before he got into Eretz Yisrael. So it's not a problem. Yaakov only kept the Torah in Eretz Yisrael. Outside of Eretz Yisrael, he did not keep the Torah. And that's how he was able to marry two sisters. <coughs> Comes of Yaakov Kamenetsky. Yaakov Kamenetsky was one of the Gedolei Hador of the last generation. And he asked a question that really is very befitting of his character. And that is, asked of Yaakov Kamenetsky... I don't get the question of the Ramban. The Ramban wants to know. The Ramban wants to know. Okay, send this down. The Ramban wants to know, how could Yaakov marry two sisters? What's the problem? I'll tell you how he was allowed to marry two sisters. He married Leah. You know why he married Leah? Because he married her. There's nothing wrong with marrying a woman. Right? He married Leah. Now you want to know why he married Rachel? I'll tell you why he married Rachel. Says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, and he's, he introduces to us a concept that many p- people are not familiar with. You know why he married Rachel? Because he said he would. Because he said he would. He told Rachel, I'm going to marry you. Right? He was engaged to her. In Yiddish, they had a vart. Right? They had a vart, you know? They, why, when did they have a vart? Yaakov said, And if you say you're going to do something... You got to do it. You hear that Chiddush? You hear it? It's a new concept. A person that says they're going to do something is morally, ethically, biblically obligated to keep what he said. 
If you say you're going to call someone, you got to call them. If you say you're going to meet someone, you got to meet them. If you say you're going to do something, you have to do it. Not because you swore, not because you promised, not because you took a shvua, because you said it. And if you commit to do something, you better do it. So now what do you want Yaakov to do? Yaakov told Rachel, I'm going to marry you. But now he wants to pull out of his back pocket a chumrah. You know what a chumrah is? A strict measure. He wants to be what we call a frummy. He wants to tell Rachel, I can't marry you. I'm a very frum guy. I keep the Torah before it was given. Yaakov Avinu, why should Rachel suffer? Because Yaakov wants to be a frum guy. Yaakov's not obligated to keep the Torah. Yaakov wants to keep the Torah. He's taking an extra legal measure. He's taking an extra precaution. He's not obligated to keep the Torah. Nobody told Yaakov that he has to keep the Torah before it was given. So he wants to be, you know, very observant, ultra-Orthodox. Not at someone else's cheshven. Not, on someone, not if someone else is going to lose out. So says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, you know why Yaakov was, had to marry Rachel? Because he told her he would. They had a vart, Right? And those of us who are familiar with Bukharian customs, they had kanchori, right? Right? Kanchori. Right? You know kanchori. I got a big education about it. Once you have the vart, once you have the kanchori, you're finished. There's no backing out. Right? One direction only. You have to get married. That's what Rabbi Yaakov asked. So if that's the case, okay? If that's the case, if the case is that once you say you're going to marry someone, once you have the engagement party, once you have the vart, once you have the kan chori, you don't even have, you don't even have to have the shini chori. Even without the shini chori. Right? Even before that. Even if you just have kan chori, there's no going out. There's no getting out of it. So therefore, if Yaakov Kamenetsky wants to know, if Yaakov is obligated to marry Rachel, then what's the Ramban's question? Why is the Ramban asking... How could Yaakov marry two sisters? He's morally obligated to marry two sisters. Says of Yaakov Kamenetsky, the Ramban has no questions on Yaakov Avinu. The Ramban's question is on God. The Ramban's question is on Hashem. What's the question? Since Hashem knew that Yaakov Avinu kept the whole Torah before it was given, why did Hashem put Yaakov in a situation where he has to violate the Torah? where he's forced to marry Leah, he got tricked into it, and then he's forced to marry Rachel because he gave his word. Why did Hashem put Yaakov in that situation? To which the Ramban answers, what situation? Yaakov only kept the Torah in Eretz Yisrael, not in Chutz Eretz. And Yaakov was never forced to violate the Torah in Eretz Yisrael. So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky is introducing to us a very novel idea, and that is we once had a shear about what we call the sanctity of marriage that about Gittin, about Kasha Gerushin, about how terrible divorce is. Now we're learning an added step. That once two people are engaged, they are bound to each other, and they may not be able to break it, perhaps. Perhaps engagement also has certain halachic ramifications. That is what we're going to learn about this evening. Okay, so we begin. We begin with uh, an interesting idea. And that is, you know, last... Last couple of weeks we were talking about shiduchin, right? We talked about shadchanos money. What does the word shiduch mean? What is, what's the shiduch? What does that word mean? Yeah? People think it's a Yiddish word. It's actually an Aramaic word. The targum, the targum on the words, vatishkoit ha'aretz, and the land was tranquil, the land was at peace, the targum unkla says, v'shadicha ara. The land was shadach. 
In other words, the word shidduch means tranquility, peace, calm. You know, most people are thinking, it's anything but that, right? If anything, you know, maybe it's lush and sagi nahar, you know, it's, it's a euphemism. But that's what the Ramah says the word shidduch means, tranquility, peace, calmness. <coughs> you know, maybe only once you find the shidduch, then, you know, you find tranquility and peace. But during the process, it's certainly a very confusing time, a very uneasy, tenuous time. And that is why, perhaps, the Sefer Aruch gives a different translation for the word shidduch, and that is me'urav. Literally, it means, you know, you have two vines and they're mingled together, they're intertwined. So shidduch is when you have two disparate individuals and they come together. But me'urav could also mean confusing, you know? So on the one hand, a shidduch is a time of confusion, but once, you know, once you got it down, once you found it, it's a time of peace of mind. Okay, so let's talk about the halacha. If a boy and a girl are engaged, is that binding? Now, in the olden days, at an engagement party, at a vart, even at a kanchori, going back many hundreds of years, they wrote tenaim at a vart. They wrote tenaim. Tenaim means you would write a formal arrangement that both sides agree to commit themselves to get married, and the, the boy side is going to give, you know, a hundred chickens to the to the girl, and they're going to give her fur coats, and they're going to give her, you know, the leather, machzoyrim, everything she wants, and two shaitals, and the girl commits to give the boy, you know, he's going to sit and learn, he's going to get his rent, he's going to get insurance, he's going to get a chasen shas, a shulchanarach, a watch, like cufflings, a menorah, esrog box, all this stuff, right? That's what, yeah? That, and they wrote it down, they wrote it down on a document, these were tanaim. Besides that, they wrote in the Tanan that if any side renegs, you have to pay a fine, a major fine. Okay? So certainly in the time that Tanan were written, the halacha is, and it's brought down in the Sefer, Nesun Kel Chasam, Asur Levatel Shiduchim Aidei Echad Hamishudachim. If one side wants to renege, you know, boy and girl, they get engaged, and one side wants to back out, they're not allowed to. That's it. You can't back out. You can't back out. Unless it's mutual unless you have the consent of both parties. Why? Why? Why can't you back out? You know? So, another very interesting idea is, what if, you know, at the time of the Tanaim, they decided they committed themselves. The girl is going to give the Chassan, you know, a silver esrog box. Could the girl's family renege? So you say, well, of course she could. Well, what happened? They made a Kenyan, right? They made a formal acquisition. They picked up a pen and they made a legal transaction to that the girl committed to give the boy a certain gift. So what? That's called asmachta. You know what asmachta is? Asmachta is when you make a Kenyan, when you make an acquisition, because you don't really think that there's any possibility of something happening. For example, you know, if let's say um, somebody, somebody bets on a game, yeah? By the way, Sfardim are now to bet. It's Asr. Halacha Lamaisa, the Shulchan Aruch says, Sfardim may not bet. The Ramah is more lenient. But, uh, but uh, you know, to pay these games, poker, all these things, for a Sfardi, it is Asr Menadin. There are no, there are no le- legal loopholes. Look at Rebbe Vadya. But that's a, a time for a different, uh, story for a different time. Asmachta Loikanya means, let's say I tell somebody, I'm going to give you um, a certain gift because I think, you know, we'll be able to work things out. So the Halacha is, 
I am not morally obligated to give you the gift. You know why? Because if something happens and the unexpected, so I could say, you know what? I never realized that this would happen. I was banking on the fact that this unexpected event wouldn't happen. So in a normal situation, if you commit to give someone a gift, and at the end of the day you want to renege, there is a legal loophole to be able to renege. But when it comes to Tanaim, if a chasin or a kala promises to give a gift to the other party, you cannot renege. Why not? Taisvis writes in the Sechta Baba Metziah, you know why you can't renege? Because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Here, what's going to happen? You had a big kanchori, right? Mm. And she gave out the sugar to everybody, right? That's what happens. She gave. And, or you have the vart, everybody comes, all the rabbis come, and all the family comes, and all the relatives come, and you make a big announcement, and you even put on, what's that thing called? You announce on the computer, what is that called? You put on only simchas, and the whole world knows your business, right? Everybody knows you're engaged. So what's going to happen? The next day, you're going to back out. The next day, you're going to back out of the, of the vart. You're going to back out of the engagement. It's going to be embarrassing. Right? Let's say the chassan wants to back out. It's going to be a public humiliation for the kala. She's going to have to go tell all her friends. Right? They may have given her gifts. It's going to be very shameful. Because of the embarrassment, Taisvis says, that makes it that you can't back out. It's mevayesh chaveroi barabim. You're embarrassing someone publicly. It's a public embarrassment. If the whole world knows that you're engaged and now you want to back out, it's shameful to the other party. Taisvis says... This is not permitted. In fact, I'll tell you a little story, and this is certainly not for the general audience. Yeah? Listen to this, Maisa Shahaya. This was brought down in the Sefer Shasat Chus, Marashtam. Marashtam was a student of Rabbi Yosef Taichik. We once mentioned him a couple of months ago. And he tells the following story. You ready? Ruvain had a daughter, Leah. Okay? Ruvain meets a nice young boy. His name is Shimon. Reuven says, I want to give you my daughter Leah, you'll get engaged, and I'll give you everything. I'll give you the Chasan Shas, the Oiz Vahadar edition, I'll give you the Shulchan Arach, I'll give you the cufflings, I'll give you the gold watch, whatever you want. Yeah, I'll give you everything. So he said, fine. And they made an arrangement, the Chasan's family is going to give the Kala, you know, three shetels, and they, they signed the, they signed the Tanoim. Yeah? Meanwhile, they're not married yet, but they're engaged. Meanwhile, Ruvain has another daughter by the name of Rachel. Rachel was married to a guy by the name of Levi. Unfortunately, <coughs> Levi passed away. So Ruvain Nebuch is stuck with, with his daughter. With, excuse me, excuse me, what happened was... Um, excuse me, Rachel passed away. And, and Ruvain is stuck with his son-in-law. He's an almond. He doesn't have anyone to marry. So he said, you know what? Instead of me giving my daughter Leah to Shimon, I don't really like Shimon anyway. You know, when I gave him the shas, he didn't even thank me, you know. I'd rather take my daughter Leah and give him to Levi. Because anyway, he was a very good husband to Rachel. So I'm going to give Leah to Levi. So behind Shimon's back, he rips up the Tanaim. And he takes his daughter, Rachel, and he says, I want you to get engaged to Levi. <coughs> Meanwhile, Shimon says, no, what kind of, what do you mean? We're engaged. You know how to do that. How could you take my kala and give him to another man? So Shimon says, that's it. Forget it. 
Shimon throws all the gifts back into his future father-in-law's house. The father-in-law throws all the gifts back into his future son-in-law's house. And Rachel is about to get engaged to Levi. When Rachel says, Levi, he's a bum. I don't want to get engaged to Levi. So Rachel calls up Ruvain, uh, Shimon, excuse me, on the phone. And she says, Shimon, I love you. I want to marry you. I don't care what my father says. So Shimon said, no, what are we going to do? Rachel then moves into Shimon's house. And the father is, is going berserk. The father up in arms. What kind of manuva, what kind of bum is, uh, is Shimon? So they get the Rabbanim involved in the case. And the Rabbanim speak to, uh, speak to Ruvain. They say, look, Ruvain. It's inevitable. Rachel is going to marry Shimon, the, guy, the, the boy who, who she was engaged to at first. But let's make things good. Let's try to do it in a pleasant way. Just agree to commit yourself to give back the gifts to, to uh, Shimon. He says, fine, on one condition. We have to do this in a decent way. She needs to come move back into my house, and then I'll give her back over to him like every father gives a daughter over to the chassan. She said, I ain't going. I'm not going back to, the, to my father's house. So now the question is, meanwhile, she's living there inappropriately. So who's right? You know, who's doing the right thing? Is Rachel wrong? Is Shimon wrong? Is Ruvain wrong? Or are you confused by now, right? <laughs> so basically, Marashtam Paskins, that the father-in-law who tried to renege on the Shidduch is an Avaryan. He's doing something wrong. He's doing something terrible. Because once he committed himself to marry off his daughter to Shimon, he may not pull back. Why? Once you agree to give over your daughter to someone, you have the vart, you have the engagement, you have the kanchori, whatever you want to call it, it's final. And to renege, if for one party to renege, it's a mevayesh chavera barabim, and that is what Toysah says. So that's the first thing we're learning. The first thing we're learning is engagement is binding because of the embarrassment factor. Fine. Now we have another very interesting uh, uh, point over here. And that is raised by the Avnei Nezah. And the Avnei Nezah talks about another story. Okay, you ready for this Maisa Shahaya? The story goes like this. This is the Avnei Nezah, A young girl who was an orphan, her father passed away, was engaged with a young man. They had the Vart, Tan Chori, fine. Um, two days later, the future Hassan is inducted into the army. He's not coming back for seven years. So the mother of the girl said, I don't understand, I'm not, we're not waiting around for you. I need to marry off my daughter quickly. I can't pay for her anymore. You know, she's shopping with the credit card. I can't pay for all those shoes anymore. I need to get her engaged to somebody. We want to back out. We're not waiting seven, we're going to wait seven years for the chassan. Says the Avnei Nezer, who doesn't want the shidduch to happen? If the girl wants to wait, the mother may not renege. Why not? Says the Avnei Nezer. There's a story in the Gemara Masech, the Tainus brought down by Rashi, by Toysis, by the Arch. Okay? It may sound like one of Aesop's fables, but actually this is where he got it from. Tysus, Rashi, the Aruch bring down the following story. There was a girl. She was very thirsty. <coughs> She's walking down the road and she sees a big pit of water. She lowers herself down into the pit and she's scooping out the water. Now she needs to get up. But she realized the pulley broke. She's stuck in the pit. A guy walks by, you know, Prince Charming comes by. 
And he looks down, he says, who's in there? She said, it's me, get me out of here. He said, only if you agree to marry me. So he pulls her up. She says, fine, I'll marry you. And then they say, but, you know, there are no Adam here. Who are going to be the witnesses to testify and make sure we keep our end of the deal? So, just then, a weasel was passing by. So the guy says, you see that weasel? He's going to be the first witness. And you see the pit? The pit is going to be the second witness. Okay. What happened? She was a good girl. She's waiting, she's waiting, she's waiting for him to come back and marry her one day. Meanwhile, he forgot about it the next day. He married somebody else. They had a child. The boy is born. After a year, a weasel comes along, bites the boy, the boy dies. They have another son. A day later, the son falls into a pit, the son dies. The mother comes to the husband and the mother says, what's going on here? If the kids would have died normally, so I would have been matzik as I would have justified, maybe we sinned, but they died with such a misa mishuna in such an unusual way. What, what do you do? What do you do? So he told her the whole story, how one time, a long time ago, he committed to marry a girl and the witnesses were the weasel and the pit. So she said, no, I'm not your basharat, you need to go marry that girl. Okay, that's the story that Rashi and Taisus bring down. The Aruch adds a few details. Meanwhile, this girl, she was a big catch. Everybody wanted to marry her. And every time, you know, somebody wanted to marry her, she said, no, 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 until people started attacking her. So she had to act as if she was epileptic and she was a hunchback. And, you know, people stayed away. So one day they get a knock on the door and this guy opens up. Well, you come to the door. Who's there? I'm your chassan. Get out of here. You know, she makes believe she's a hunchback and she's uh, epileptic. You know, she's doing crazy things. He said, no, don't you remember me? The guy with the weasel in the pit. All of a sudden, she stands up straight. She's beautiful. And they get married happily ever after. Says the Avnei Nezer. What do you see from the story? If you tell someone you're going to do something, you better do it. You better do it. He promised her that he's going to be faithful to, the, to, the, to his word. And even a weasel in a pit were the witnesses and came through for, came through for him. Says the Avnei Nezer, if the girl doesn't want to wait around, that's her choice. But for the mother to instigate and you know, try to say we should break things up, she has no right to do that. You need to be faithful to your word. So that's what the Avnei Nezer says, another reason why the engagement is binding. Why? <coughs> Because you gave your commitment, you gave your faith. Now there's another idea that may come as a surprise to many people. And that is, the same way one is not permitted to marry two women. Right? You're not to marry two? There's Cherem Drabinu Gershon. Yeah? No, really, you can't marry two, right? <laughs> yeah, you can't do it. Rabbeinu Gershon made a Cherem that a person cannot marry two women. The Rishonim also made a cherem that you can't break an engagement. Know that? It's the same, the Mordechai in Masech the Yavamas, in the same breath that he talks about the cherem of Rabbeinu Gershon, he talks about the cherem of the Rishonim that you cannot break an engagement. Whose cherem? Which Rishonim? The Marsham writes in Chelek Dalet, Kuf Nun Beis, Rabbeinu Tam and the Rashbam. Can you imagine? The biggest of Rishonim. The biggest of the Rishonim. Rabbeinu Tam. The Rashbam put a cherem, cannot break engagement. Yeah? Says the Rashbam. Says, excuse me, the Marsham. This is a takana 
that the Bezdin Hagadol and Yerushalayim was Masakim. You can't break it. The same way, a person can't say, you know what? Uh, two women, that's for most people. Not for me. Right? Would anybody say that? The same thing with engagement. <coughs> it's a takana, it's a cherem. You know how many rabbanim you need to break it? You only need 150. For cherem, the rabbeinu gershon, you need 100 rabbanim. For takanas hakihila, you only need 150 rabbanim. Okay? So you say, okay, all of this is antiquated. This is all old-fashioned. You know why? Because this is all in the time that they used to write Tanaim. They used to write formal agreements. But today, what do we do at Avart? You eat cake, right? And you bring in a special cake from Barra Park with the cream in it, and you pay $80. That's all you do. Right? Nothing more than that. Or a kan chori. I mean, okay, it's very nice. You give out sugar, right? How much does the sugar cost already? Right? It's not... But candy... Okay, it's a little bit more expensive, but it's still not, you know. Chocolate. Is it binding? Chocolate. Chocolate. Right. But there's no, you don't write anything, right? There's no sofa. So you'll say, you know, in the olden days, when they used to write Tanoim, you had a cherem, you had... Um, but now, you know, nobody's giving their word, nobody's promising anything. It's just, you know, they, 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 they think it's time to get engaged, and, you know, how long could it, how many times could they go out already? How many times could they go to the same, you know the same lounge in the Brooklyn Marriott, so they decide they're going to go, they're going to get engaged. But is anybody committing to anybody? Did anybody, you know, you know take a pledge, I commit? So what's the halacha b'zman hazeh? Is a person allowed to break an engagement today? So let's look what Rav Moshe Feinstein writes. Now Rav Moshe Feinstein is writing about a completely different topic. He wants to know like this. A boy and girl are going out, and you're interested in that girl. Are you allowed to, you know, try to steal her? Start, you know, you call her behind his back and you're going to go out with her without him knowing about it. Are you allowed to do that? Or is that, you know, like, right? Imagine if, uh, you know, we ordered from Carlos and Gabby's, right? Imagine if there was a guy intercepting all of Carlos and Gabby's phone calls. Oh, you want, you want, uh, you want fleshics? No problem, you know? And they intercept all the phone calls and they bring food that you were going to order from Carlos and Gabby's. Right? You know, they can't do that. It's Oni Hamahapech Becharora. They're, you know, they're undermining someone else's business. So if a person is going out with the girl, can another guy come along and, you know, steal the girl? No. At what point could you not, you know, at what point is it the other guys? What point is it his? So Moshe Feinstein says like this. They went out one time. Doesn't mean anything. You could, you could, uh, a Yari Shamayim should not get involved in somebody else's, you know, shidduch process. But if somebody wants to and they feel, you know, that's one for you're allowed to. If they go out twice, you're allowed to. If they go out a hundred times, you're allowed to. As long as they have not officially announced the engagement. But once the Chassan and Kala announce the engagement, you don't need Tanoim. You don't even need to give out sugar or candy or chocolate. You don't even need to order that cake. Once the engagement is announced says Rav Moshe, the cherem of Rabbeinu Tam and the Rashbam is in full force. So therefore, once a chasen kala announced their engagement, for you to go to try to steal the girl, you're going to cause them to violate this cherem, and you're not allowed to do that. So Rav Moshe is paskening halacha l'maysa today, even though we don't write to know him, and there's no formal kinyan, there's no formal arrangement, the engagement is binding. Why? Because people know about it. People know about it. Doesn't matter. Ashkenazi, Sfardi, it doesn't matter what you do. 
even if you say we're getting engaged, but you know what, uh, I'll decide later. Once the word is official, you know, once you put on only simchas, once the word gets out, it's over. Cheren. Cheren. Unless both parties agree. Okay. Are there any times that it's permitted to break a shidduch? So, we're going to see, now, whatever we're learning today, where mespalel should only be lahalacha v'loy lamaisa. Nobody should know of such things. All the shidduchim we enter should be chakayom, shor v'kayom, should be and they should bring everyone bracha v'atzlach. So what we're learning today should be purely academic. Right? What happens if the chasan is mekolkol ma'asav? He becomes a bum. He, be- he becomes a bum. Not if he was always a bum. He becomes a bum. The Shulchan Aruch writes in two places, number 17, number 18, in Yardere Reish Chavches, Evan Ezer Simenun. Let's say a person swears. He swears to somebody. He says, I swear I'm going to give you my daughter as a wife. And then he finds out the chasen is a bum. Yeah? What does that mean? He's mesachik bekuvya. He doesn't have a normal job. You know, he makes his money on uh, mesachik bekuvya. Yeah? You don't have to keep the shvua. It's batal. The shidduch is off. You're not bound by the shvua. If the chasen is mekolka masav, if the chasen becomes a bum, the shidduch is off. You could break it. Unless she wants it. Unless she's also a, you know. Thank you. Now, but be very careful. Okay? I'll tell you a story. Now, had the story not been in the Neide Behuda, you know, this would certainly not be for a general audience, but this is in the Shalas Shuvas Neide Behuda. You ready for this? Basically, Chassan and Kala get engaged, and the Kala comes screaming. The Chassan tried to be Ma'anesmi. <coughs> Chassan tried to, to rape the Kala. So they come to the, the son of the Neid of Yehuda. This should be a classic case of Mekolko Masav. The Chassan became a bum. Because, by the way, not only is someone who's engaged, they can't even be in the same secluded room as the Kala. Right? Yichud is Asr. Can't even, a Kala, right? If she's a Nida, it's a Isr Dairaisa to even to lay hands on her. And the Kala comes with this report. Kala comes with this report that he tried to be Ma'anasar. So the son of the Nadi Behuda Paskind, you can't be Mavato the Shidduch because of that. Because he tried to, but he didn't do it. He didn't do it. So you say, but, but he's obviously a bad guy. Well, maybe he would have done Shuva right before. That's what he said. I, what do you mean? But he was secluded in the same room as her. What kind of Ben Taira is he? That's an, right, it's Asr. Naidi Behuda says, unfortunately not everybody knows the halacha, that it's absolutely forbidden for two people, even if they're engaged, to be secluded in the same room. And therefore, as terrible as the thing he tried to do, what, we, what are we going to do? We're going to punish him for his machshava, for his bad thoughts? He didn't do anything. She was smart enough to scram. Nothing happened. What, because he, he demonstrated one time that he wanted to do something? So the next day he went back to yeshiva and he learned the black gemara and hopefully he won't do it again. Okay, surprising, right? Says the son of the Neid of Yehuda, Bechlal, you can't break the shikh. You know why? Who said he tried to be Ma'ana, sir? She said. She's not a kosher witness. She's only one witness. And it's relevant to her. She's Nagei Abedava. She's not believed. 
We don't believe her. We don't believe a word she says. And therefore, the son of Abihuda says, ultimately he says he could break it for other reasons, but I'm just giving you an illustration. Just because the guy one time in the middle of learning Gemara went downstairs to have a coffee break, you know, and you don't, he's not the next Chazoinish, doesn't necessarily mean he is Makoko Masa. Okay. Now what we have over here is something very fascinating, and that is we have a whole long laundry list of possible reasons that the Paiskim discuss of why it would or would not be permitted to break a Shidduch. I'll give you an example. <coughs> Everybody told the Chassan she was 26 years old, right? Mm-hmm. Turns out she's 69. <laughs> yeah? <coughs> so is that... Uh, or, or, she thought, now all of these cases, not so simple. Not so simple, you could break it. Unless she's much, much older. You know, the case I gave is pretty clear cut. But the place can talk about, if you thought she was 26 and she was really 39, some surface says you can't, you can't break it. you got to do your research before. Okay, again, this is not la halacha. Ask your local Orthodox rabbi. Okay, I'll give you another case. She, she was wearing a mask. Turns out her nose is a little too long for your liking. Right? Or, you thought the guy, Epis, you know, he could learn something. He can't even open up a blah gemara. He, can't even, he doesn't even know how to hold it right side up. That's the one case that you could break the shidduch. If you thought, if you told the chassid, look, I'm going to give you some money, you'll be able to sit and learn, and turns out the guy, Nebuch, he doesn't even know a gimel from a dalid, the Benesh Chai Paskins, it's off, if the, if the Kala so chooses. What if, you know, the guy turns out to be a Meshugana? So obviously in that case, you know. But the Paiskim discuss literally dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of potential cases where maybe yes, maybe not. Okay. Rabbi Isai, we're going to conclude this year with one of... Oh, just give me one more moment. One more moment. What about if both parties agree to break the Shidduch? Should they or is it better not to? It's still better not to. It's still better not to. In fact, even, even if both sides agree, in fact... Many Gedolim say, and I know in our yeshiva, that's what uh, the Rosh Yeshiva used to advise, that better to get married and have a get than to break an engagement. And that's brought down by many Paiskim. Doesn't mean this is how we pass an Allah Chalamaisa, but it just goes to show the severity of the Indian. That uh, there's a common expression, common expression, mutav klaf better to tear up Better to tear up, better to have a get than to tear up a tanar. Okay. And you can never get a kisil like a anymore, right? What? You can never get a kisil like a basula anymore? No, you could. You're still a basula. Still a basula. Anyway, they still give a basula basula. Yeah. Rabbi said just two other halachas, then we're going to get to an amazing story. What do you do with all the gifts? You know, everybody came, they gave <coughs> gifts at the, at the vert, or the chassan gave gifts to the kala, the kala gave gifts to the chassan. Everything has to be returned. Everything has to be returned. In fact, if let's say the chassan side paid for a vart or the kan chori, if the kala wants to break it, she got to pay the chassan side for all their expenses. Let's say the chassan's family flew in and people paid money to fly in, 
the expenses have to be uh, covered. Okay? These are some of the uh, relevant halachos. But besides, on top of this, if it's broken, even though obviously there's no divorce, there's no get, a shtar should be written. It's called a shtar mechila, a shtar peturin. That the Sri Deyesh writes, there's no official nusach, but at least each party should have a document in their hand. You don't want to have a situation, you know, they get married, and um, right, another case, well, you get engaged to someone, turns out they were engaged before, you didn't know about it. Okay, so these are all cases the Sri Deyesh recommends that in all these situations, one should write what we call a shtar mechila. You go to a rav, the rav writes a shtar mechila this way. In the future, if anybody wants to know, you have... Now, what does it say in the shtar mechila? It says... Both parties forgive the other party for any embarrassment, any shame, and they agree to forego any financial obligations. Okay? Rabbi Sai, turn over your sheets to the last page. Meet Rav Mordechai Benet. Okay? You have the picture over here. Rav Mordechai Benet. Or in uh, Latin or in English, his name was Marcus Benedict. Okay? But I don't think that's what they, how they, he got called up to the Torah. He got called up, Rav Mordechai Benet, was born in 1753. He passed away in 1829. And he was the acclaimed Gadol Hadar in Moravia for 40 years. What? You can't ask this question. I have, I have no idea. No, no it's... Uh, it's... Where? No, it's, it's where Hungary is today. Hungary didn't exist then. It's uh, the Czech Republic and where Hungary. Where Hungary and the Czech Republic is. Okay, here's the story. You ready? At the age of 60 years old, the God of Hadar, Rav Mordechai Benet, he became, became very weak, and he started losing his strength. And his son writes, he began suffering various ailments until the doctor said, if you want to live any longer, you need to go to the spas. You know, a few hundred years ago, they used to think, they didn't believe in medicine, at least that, in that respect they were smart. Right? They, did, they thought spas cured everything. Right? They saw, still do. What? Still do. Yeah. Fine. Spas, you know, you go, hot baths. Fine. Yeah. So they told him, go to Carlsbad. Go to Carlsbad. So he goes to Carlsbad in Tammuz. What? Yeah, he goes to Carlsbad, 1829. He comes to Carlsbad, he starts drinking the water. He never had such terrible water in his, in his life. As soon as this, what he called, accursed water entered his body, he began suffering from terrible cramps, and his arteries began to weaken, and his ligaments began to weaken. Seventeen days later, from the time he comes to the spa, unfortunately, the God of Hadar passes away, Yud Gimel, Menachem Av, 1829. What happens? Of course, he wants to be buried in the city, right? His, his children want to bury him in the city, that he was the Rav. Where was he the Rav? In Nicholsburg. Neustadt. Nicholsburg. He was the Rav of, Neust- of Nicholsburg. He was the student of Rav Shmiel Shmelka of Nicholsburg. And his whole life, we had, there was testimony. He always said he wanted to be buried in Nicholsburg. And not only that. One time his wife, who was a big tzaddikist. Now, by the way, his wife always prayed her whole life that she should die first so that he could say Kaddish for her and learn Mishnahis for her. And Kachava. She died a year before he went. And one time his wife said, you know, you see that spot of land right next to Rav Shmiel Shmelka in Nicholsburg? I want to be buried there. That's what his wife says to uh, the Rav. The Rav said, no, that spot is for me. I want that spot. You'll be buried next to my feet, he says. You'll be buried. Fine. 
So he passes away, and everybody knew he wanted to be buried in Nicholsburg. The only thing was, the law of the land is, you can't transfer a body. Yeah, they believed, you know, bodies carry uh, contamination, and you needed to have a permit to move the body. So they didn't know what to do. So they decide they're going to move the body to the nearest city. What's the nearest city? Lamed Shin, Lichtenstadt. They go to Lichtenstadt, and they're about to put the body into the grave, they give terrible eulogies and they wail and they cry. And Rav Naftali, the son of Rav Mordechai Benet, announces, I want everyone to know, that this is not where we're going to bury the God al-Hadar. It's only temporary until we get a permit. I don't know how long the permit's going to take, but we're not burying him here permanently. It's only temporary. He's, he makes that announcement before the burial. He makes that announcement after the burial. And after the burial, Rav Naftali, together with the Rabbanim in Nicholsburg, they set out to try to get a permit to move the body to, to Nicholsburg. First they go to, uh, they go to Wien, somewhere in the Austrian uh, Empire. They don't want to give the permit. Then they go to Prague and they get a permit. And the permit says like this, you can move him, but you need to first put his body in a coffin. And before you do that, you need to defumigate the body with all kinds of oils and spices and minerals. And then you need to take the coffin and defumigate the outside of the coffin. Then you need to put that coffin in another coffin. Then you need to take that coffin and sprinkle it with oils and spices and all kinds of uh, smokes. And then you need to put the second coffin in a third coffin. And then you could take the body, move it from Lichtenstadt to Neistadt, to Nicholsburg. Fine. What happens? They come to the kever. And the people are up in arms. You're not moving him. We were Zaycha. The God of Hador is buried in our city. And Mekaymai, he's kind of his Mekaymai. He's buried here. Hashkocha had it. We want him to be buried here. After all, everybody knew that. Rav Mordechai Benet said that after he passes away, anybody who needs anything, you need, a, you know, you need Parnasa, you need a Shiloh, you need good health, right? You come to his kever. We want the address to be in our city. They said, okay, very nice. That's nice that what you want. But he wanted to be buried in Nicholsburg. So they take it to the Rav. The Rav said, who do you think you are? Do you have a psak from any responsible Rav that you can move his body? I mean, we don't just move bodies. We've been trying our whole life to preserve the Kedusha of the Mason. You can't just move him. And then the Rav said a very smart thing. You know, if you want to get people scared, you don't say, it says in Shulchan Aruch, you know how to do it. You don't say, it's a halacha. What do you say? You never know. This might not be good, you know, superstition. It might arouse the wrath of Hashem. Ooh, right? And then everyone's going to get all scared. Once you, you know, bring up something superstitious, you know, as long as it's not halacha, once it's superstition, people are going to get very scared. So that scared the Rabbanim in Nicholsburg. So they didn't know what to do. So they sent the question to the three Paiske Hadar. Rabbi Akiva Eger, the son of the Noid of Yehuda, Rav Shmuel Landau in Prague, and the Chassam Seifer. And the Chassam Seifer gets a letter and he says, what do you want from me? You already sent it to, you know, the two great lions, but I'll be, you know, I'll be a small cub next to them. Let me tell you what I think. Now, the Rabbanim in Nicholsburg presented the following four arguments to their case to be able to move the body of Ramor Chabanet. The first argument was, Look, everybody knows that a dead person, a mace, feels comfortable among Kivrei Avaisaf. 
when a person goes it's more comfortable to be among the family. That's what the Paiskim say. It's more comfortable. So therefore, the Mordechai Benet, his wife's in Nicholsburg, his mother's in Nicholsburg, his children are buried in Nicholsburg, his grandchildren are buried in Nicholsburg. He probably want to be buried in Nicholsburg. And not only that, he said, his whole life he always told his wife, he wanted to be buried next to Rav Shmuel Shmelka. So that was his desire. And we have the testimony of Rav Gavriel Ibishitz, no relation to Rav Yonis and Ibishitz, who was with him on his last days. And every night before Rav Mordechai Benet went to sleep, Rav Mordechai Benet said, I want to be buried in Nicholsburg, and if not Nicholsburg, at least Prague. And Rav Naftali, his son, when he buried him, he said, I'm only burying him temporarily until I'm able to move him. So the one who did the kvura, the one responsible for the kvura, he said, I don't want to bury him here. And finally, he's buried in some Fardarbana Beisach Kvaris in Nicholsburg. There are mountains around there. No one could access it. Nobody could dive in there. Bring him to, bring him to Nicholsburg. Says Achsam Soifer, I don't agree with any of your arguments. First of all, like this. Okay, if you want to take a look, if you want to follow it inside, this is a uh, number sheet number seven, the second column, the second paragraph. Psalm Soifer says, "You claim this rabbi, Rabbi Gavriel Ibishet, says that he heard from a Mordechai Benet that he wants to be married and buried in Nicholsburg. Who is this guy, Rabbi Gavriel Ibishet, anyway? He's a resident of Nicholsburg." Of course he wants his rabbi to be buried in Nicholsburg. He has no credibility. He's no Gehabedavar. He's biased. Of course he wants his rabbi to be buried in Nicholsburg. So therefore, what do we have to do to Rev. Gavriel Ibishitz? We need to tell him, have a nice day. We don't accept anything you're saying. He's no Gehabedavar. So you says Achsam Soifer, but maybe you'll say, or you'll pull the following trick. Rev. Gavriel Ibishitz says that the rabbi said he wanted to be buried in Nicholsburg, and if not Nicholsburg, Prague. Now, Rav Gavriel Ibershitz couldn't care less if the Rebbe was in Prague. So regarding what the Rebbe said that he wanted to be buried in Prague, we could believe him. So once you take him out of the ground to move him to Prague, now he's out already, now you can move him to Nicholsburg, because that's where his family is. But says Achsam Soifer, no, he's still not gay Abedavar, he's still biased. Because Prague is a lot closer to Nicholsburg than Liechtenstein. Then Achsam Soifer says further, Aye, everybody knows he said that he wants to be buried next to the Rebbe of Shmuel Shmelka. He obviously gave up on that. Because if in his dying words he said, either bury me in Nicholsburg or Prague, what do you mean or Prague? Don't you want to be buried next to the Rebbe of Shmelka? Obviously, you know, he wasn't so confident that that would happen. Obviously, he was mochel on that. So once he's mochel on that, he's mochel. But says Achsam Soifer, the argument that his son, Rav Naftali, gave, that he buried him on condition that he would move him, that is a very powerful argument. And because of that argument, I am going to allow you to move him. And Achsam Soifer is about to give a heter. And all of a sudden, in the middle of writing this tshuva, this responsa, the tshuva takes a 90 degree turn, and Achsam Soifer says, but you know what? Thinking about it a little bit more, you know what I'm worried about? You know, all the Jewish communities in, in Europe, they used to have the cemetery right next to the city. 
And the government always wanted to raise the cemetery and move the graves to some faraway place. Because they wanted to make fields and a place for animals to graze. And the Jewish people were always up in arms, you know, they wanted to protect the sanctity of the Mason. So what are we going to do now? You're going to take out the Gadol Hadar and you're going to move him. You know what the government's going to say? You guys are a bunch of phonies. Yeah, you believe in the sanctity of the mace? So look what you're doing to your rabbi. Says the Chassam Seifer, I'm afraid this is going to cause the destruction of all the Beis HaKfaros in Europe. And therefore you're now to move him. But, thinking about it again, if you could make sure that they'll realize this is just a one-time dispensation, then uh, you could do it. But, Wait. A very strange response of the Chassam Seifer. Usually the Chassam Seifer was very definitive and decisive in his psaq. In fact, Chassam Seifer said about himself that if he gave a psaq and he brought a proof from a Gemara, if you shlugged up the proof, he would still say the psaq. You know why? Because his psaq has nothing to do with the proof. Because he feels he has such heavenly assistance to come to the right conclusion that it doesn't matter if all of his proofs are shlugged up. God gave him the siyat of the Shemaya to say the right psaq. And here the Chassam Seifer is going back and forth and waiting and maybe yeah, maybe not. Comes the son of the Chassam Seifer, Reb Shimon Seifer, and he offers the following eyewitness testimony. The Chassam Seifer, while he was writing this tshuva, he fell asleep. And he had a dream. And in the dream who came to him, none other than Reb Mordechai Banet. And he says, Chassam Soifer, I want to tell you something. Your psak is correct, you're allowed to move me. But not yet. Because many years ago, I was engaged to the Rebetzin of Lichtenstadt. And we were engaged for seven months. And because the Shidduch was broken, even though I was halakhically allowed to, Min HaShamayim, they have a certain complaint against me, that I need to be buried next to her for seven months, the amount of time that we were engaged for. So you know what, Chassam Seifer, you're right, wait seven months. And that's what happened. Seven months later to the date, Chassam Seifer gave the definitive psaq to move, to move Rav Mordechai Banet, and on Adar. We have over here an Adar in the year... Tafkov Peites, actually it was, it was then the year Tafkov Tzadi, when Mordechai Benet was moved seven months to the day after the Chassam Soifer received word from Mordechai Benet that it was time to move. Now there are different versions of the story. Some say Rav Mordechai Benet was engaged to this girl and that's what you'll see in the account of Rav Shimon Soifer. Others say Rav Mordechai Benet once gave a heter to break a shidduch. But the lima tonight, I think, is more even more important than the details of the halachos of the binding nature of an engagement is the idea of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky that we started with. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky writes in a footnote, we didn't read it yet, in number 16. Rabbi Yaakov writes, You know why the halacha says that once a boy and a girl have a vart, they should get married and they're obligated to get married because he said he would. Mm -hmm. And if a person says something, a person commits to do something, that alone is binding. That alone a person has to treat very seriously. You know, we live in a time that people use words very freely and in a sense words have very little meaning. But when you look at the halacha and you see that words actually have very strong meaning, they're binding, there's something that a person has to abide by, 
That's a very important limo and a very important lesson that we could take from here. Have a wonderful evening.